0: Thank you so much for tuning in to NL Newsday. It's Monday, the first day of the work week. So as always, pleased to welcome to the program, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how you doing here this afternoon?
1: I'm great. Thank you
0: for having me. Well, as always, appreciate your time. Let's start here with the issue of COVID 19 vaccines and the police. Now, the RCMP's union has said it supports the right of RCMP officers to refuse to get vaccinated and will back up any member who refuses vaccination once mandatory vaccine policy for federal public services. Is in place. Um, So it says it supports the members' right to be vaccinated or not. That's basically the gist of the union's message. But we heard, of course, from Prime Minister Trudeau, who said we are unequivocal that civil servants must be vaccinated. If anyone doesn't have a legitimate medical reason for not getting fully vaccinated, there will be consequences. Now, when talking about this subject, I mean, we saw some recent data coming up from the United States saying five times as many police officers have died from COVID-19 as from gunfire since the beginning of this pandemic. Of course, we're talking about the United States, so that probably doesn't translate exactly as we come across the border north of uh, the United States into Canada here. But I'm sure there is at least some parallel to that. So with that being said, um, I guess, what are the... Big issues at play from a legal standpoint here with the with the government of Canada saying you have to get vaccinated, but the union saying it's going to support those who don't want one. But really, that's got to be a, a, a part of your employment at this stage, given how the, the federal government is moving forward with this.
1: It absolutely is a, a condition on employment. Um, and because it's a condition on employment, uh, it does sort of involve the work of the unions. If an RCMP member wishes to challenge that condition, saying that it's unjust or unfair or unreasonable or unnecessary, the union's role is to step in and say, you know, we support our union member or the employee um, in this challenge, and we're going to advocate for them in the same way that, you know, I would advocate for somebody who's charged with an event. The difference here is that the RCMP I don't think have much of a leg to stand on in challenging this as a condition of employment. They're interacting with members of the public in particular members of the public who are particularly vulnerable Uh, it's not an unreasonable condition of employment to say look like you have to get a vaccine. We've seen it uh, mandated in other industries and and I expect that challenges to that are going to fail. Uh, We know about the negative impacts of the pandemic um, on, on the health of individuals and it's a reasonable measure to protect the safety of officers and it is about officer safety as much as it is about the safety of the individuals that the officers are interacting with.
0: Well, one of the comparisons that I saw being made here, and I'm not sure how apples to apples it is, but I think there's definitely some relevance to it. And there was talk about bulletproof vests and, uh, you know, whether or not, You have to wear one as a police officer. You mean it definitely will reduce your chances of dying if you were to get shot. But, you know, I guess, is there a mandatory reason for having a bulletproof vest? That's kind of the correlation that's being made here is, you know, this isn't going to stop you from getting COVID, but it does improve your chances of not contracting the virus. I mean, is that a fair comparison to be making here? Do you think?
1: I think it's an absolutely fair comparison to be making. A bulletproof vest stops your chances of, of dying or significantly reduces your chances of dying if you get shot. Obviously, it doesn't cover every inch of your body. There's still a possibility that you're going to get shot uh, and you're going to be killed um, or you're going to be severely injured, um, but it significantly reduces those chances, and it protects the officer from injury. It's part of the duty uniform that officers are required to wear. Um, we saw challenges related to the RCMP uniform um Previously, uh, involving individuals who wanted to wear uh, religious head garments, Mm -hmm. for example, um, and who said, "You know, I shouldn't have to wear the RCMP hat because I would rather wear my turban." And eventually, those challenges were successful, largely on the basis of the fact that there was no corresponding safety issue associated with wearing the RCMP hat. It was more tradition and formality. Uh, Bulletproof vests and vaccines are not the same. They are not the type of thing that that are just ceremonial or. they are for the protection of the officer and for the protection of the public.
0: One thing I think probably many would be worried about, I mean, this is something that always kind of crosses my mind when we're talking about police specifically, is that they seem to have... Uh, a really strong representation with their union. They always seem to be able to, um, you know, almost have a, a really big sway in decisions. And, and I'm wondering, you know, if, even if, you know, there is this whole, okay, we, we want members to be able to refuse a vaccine if they so choose. Uh, I just worry that there's going to somehow be this loophole that, okay, even if you choose not to get a vaccine and you can't come to work because that is a, uh, a, a, part of your employment standard is that you have to be vaccinated in order to come to work, you know, they're going to just... Somehow be able to sit at home with pay. That is something I think every taxpayer has a huge gripe with when it comes to cops is that they always, whenever they're found to be in some sort of situation where they need to take some time off. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of times when it's very much warranted. So I'm not knocking that, but they always seem to be sitting at home with pay. And is there any concern you think that people should have when it comes to something like this? Because the union always seems to find ways to get around it.
1: I do think that that is a big concern. Right now, uh, the word is that officers who don't comply are going to be suspended without pay. But I expect that a small victory the union might win um, is that those officers be suspended with pay uh, under the expectation that at the point in time that we no longer need to have pandemic related measures in place where we have, you know, significant vaccination, 90, 95 percent of the population being fully vaccinated, uh, where there are better treatment methods for COVID-19. that the the thinking will be that those officers can then return to duty. But paying them in the meantime to sit at home and not police is a huge expense for taxpayers who are already footing the bill. For all of the COVID-19 measures we've had in place, all of the things that the government has done to try and uh, support individuals through the pandemic, that's being paid for by taxpayer dollars. Taxpayers don't need to or want to pay for RCMP officers to sit at home and not do their jobs as a result of a decision not to get vaccinated.
0: Of course, we're talking specifically about RCMP. If I, I don't know any examples or if this has even come up, but when we're talking about municipal police forces, does that Ease the process at all? I mean, they still have very strong unions. It doesn't really matter, right, whether you're part of the RCMP or or a a municipal police force. But I suppose it does change the negotiations a little bit.
1: And municipal police forces are going to be different because at the end of the day, it's going to be the cities that are mandating uh, the policy for the municipal police. Um, So, you know, the city of Vancouver might come up with a different policy uh, than the city of Delta. Um, And we're going to see very interesting things, I I think, if we see different cities mandating different vaccination policies for police officers. We may see officers leaving one force to go join another in a relatively, like, close proximity um, in order to continue working or in order to not have to take the vaccine. Um, So it'll be interesting to see the fallout of that as municipalities legislate in relation
0: to the municipal police forces, mm-hmm, for sure. All right. Well, I'll leave it at that for now. I'm sure we'll have some follow up as uh, that makes its way through the process. I did want to ask you a little bit about Vancouver street sweeping because this, it, you know, it's not a new issue by any means, but every once in a while it gets moved to the top of the the news cycle here. And I saw it over the course of the weekend. Um, street sweeping, of course, is a, an initiative where city workers are accompanied by police officers, and they basically. Clean the sidewalk or sweep the sidewalk, if you will, to ensure they're cleared. And that would include things like tents or whatever else uh people are using to sort of live their lives on those sidewalks. Um, that's an incredible cost to the taxpayer to do these sweeps. But there is a lot of advocates that are coming out now and and are very upset with the way this is basically targeting the homeless and specifically looking at the city of Vancouver. And you know, the downtown east side is always the area that is is discussed in this type of a situation. I mean is there any leg to stand on or is there any uh you know fair complaint to be made on the behalf of the advocates of the homeless population that this is something that uh shouldn't be done because as far as i know it is you know the within the bylaw that you have to have stuff moved off the streets by nine o'clock in the morning and if you haven't complied to that uh there would i would think be a right on behalf of the city to to move your stuff out of there i think
1: that the you know homeless advocates and the individuals who are affected by this do have a, a right to complain well nothing in the charter protects your right to uh, your personal properties you do have a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure and if you're experiencing homelessness or uh, or you have you know difficulty with uh, getting your belongings uh, to a safe space because of your personal circumstances you shouldn't have to have your belongings unnecessarily seized by a city simply because it doesn't want stuff on the street by a certain time of day or night. Um, That law appears to be completely arbitrary um, and and arguably infringes upon the the right to be secure against unreasonable seizure of your belongings. Um, In addition, we have to recognize that these laws were not crafted for the purposes of, uh, or hopefully these laws were not crafted for the purposes of punishing homeless individuals. But the result of these laws is that those are the people that are being disproportionately punished. Um and so the the if the law is being applied in a way that is inherently discriminatory against somebody on the basis of their economic situation, then the law itself is deeply and fundamentally flawed and I think could could very easily be challenged on the basis of its inherently discriminatory nature.
0: Um. Does does the argument, I guess, move into more prominence with the fact that I'm seeing from a lot of the complaints out there from advocates that property is not just being seized, it's really being destroyed or or ruined in some way. I would think that might change the arguments here a little bit as well.
1: It does, because at that point, you're also affecting somebody's life, liberty, and security of the person. You know, at, at, at the point that somebody is experiencing homelessness or is, is struggling with their, their personal situation like that, um, having those belongings may give them the opportunity to earn an income uh, through the sale of, of some things. It may give them valuable items for trade. It may include items that actually protect their safety, sleeping bags, warm coats, shoes, things like that, that actually allow an individual to have shelter. If you take those belongings away from a person you put their life potentially at risk and now you're engaging the the most significant of the charter rights the one that protects you in your life liberty and security of the person so i think the fact that it you know the belongings are being destroyed which is putting people at risk on other days as well um does have a significant bearing on this
0: okay um we are up on the clock, and I did want to ask one other thing here. With while well, I have you on the line, Kyla, and that is, we have Justin, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, in town here today. He's meeting with uh, Kupi Roseanne Casimir at uh, Tecumseh to Shekwepmik. Uh, of course, this is coming after he refused the invitation to attend on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. So I guess he's kind of trying to make up for his absence that day and and come here today. But I don't want to get into the event. I wanted to ask you about this. Indigenous intercultural course that the Law Society of B.C. has started started piloting late last month. September 27th is when it came into place. Um, it's part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action, number 27, which asked law societies to require Indigenous intercultural competency for their lawyers. Have you had a chance to start this course? And, and you know, do you think it's going to have the desired impact? Obviously, uh, it's a pilot right now, so things are going to change as this gets a little bit more uh, cemented.
1: I have signed up to be one of the pilot testers for the course and I've received my link to do it. I haven't had a chance to actually take the course yet, but I am looking forward to it. As I understand, the course content was largely written by Indigenous individuals, um, people with uh, knowledge about the specific issues related to Indigenous cultural competency Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what it is that uh, the Law Society is is teaching people, um, particularly in respect of a legal relationship um, between for example client and, and lawyer, um, where one of the two parties uh, is Indigenous, as well as between Indigenous lawyer and non-Indigenous lawyer. And I hope that many of the things that I see and have experienced as an Indigenous lawyer are going to be corrected um, through the information that lawyers learn in this course.
0: Well, once you have a chance to uh, complete it or or at least get into some of the meat and potatoes, I will definitely want to follow up at that point in time. But uh, we'll leave it at that for now, Kyla. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for this and have a great rest of your day.
1: Thanks for
0: having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee, joining me here on Monday afternoon after the 530 News, as she does almost every single week.